I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, right now I'm on this national tour for the One Square Inch of Silence. Simon & Schuster is the publisher of it. And um, of all the stops I've made, this is the one, the first one that I've actually really been dying to go to. All the other ones was like, oh my god, I can't do that. It's going to be live. <laughs> and how long does it last? And then, of course, this one I've been looking forward to. But then I get to go to this meeting. And, you know, thank you, Dan, for, for hosting this and also for the Nature Sound Society. And, when, and Aaron sent me the email that says, oh, notice that you're making a stop in San Francisco. You think, you, you know, you come? And I said, yeah, it'd be great. But, you know, I want a break from the, the spotlight. And so it'd be just nice to put some faces to names that I have heard for so long. Because since the last time I was in the Bay Area, and it was for the Nature Sound Society uh, workshop, Right. Was that 91 or 92? 92. 92? I was there. Yeah, yeah, you were. I remember. Yeah. And, and since then, I've been becoming more and more recluse, um, really not even interested in communicating much at all with other nature sound recordists because I was so busy just trying to become a better listener myself and being alone, and I moved to this town of 100 people, okay? And uh, I mean, it's real, you know, you think of 100 people, but in many of the rooms I've been in, there's more people in that room than live in my whole town. And my closest neighbor is, must be, well, excluding the cow. <laughs> it's, it's like a quarter mile away. Dan and Sharon stopped in. They know that it's a really beautiful place in my backyard. It's pretty much Olympic National Park, and the reason why I moved there is because I really believe that Olympic Park is the listener's Yosemite. It's three parks in one. We have everything from snow-capped mountains with glaciers to the uh, temperate rainforest there with the Earth's tallest living creatures, 300 feet tall. Sitka spruce and dug fir and western hemlock and the Roosevelt elk just bugling through this beautiful amphitheater. And then we have the longest uninterrupted uh, wilderness shoreline in the lower 48. And my f one of, I almost said my favorite sound, but that would be a total lie because I have so many. <laughs> one of my favorite sounds of all, and I'm not going to play that tonight. So. Maybe I have a sample, we'll, we'll see, but, um, is the sound of these driftwood logs as they resonate on the beach. But that's almost like a whole story in itself, and I, and I don't want to talk a lot tonight. Uh, I'm interested in actually maybe, <clears throat> with the help of other people here, maybe pick out an issue, two, three, or four, that... Um, you know, it's sort of underappreciated by the general public, but we as listeners, you know, teaching ourselves to become better listeners, the sort of surface to our sensibilities, because I have an opportunity really now as a, 
as a spokesperson for silence and you know not in any way claiming to be a substitute for silence but and when I say silence I mean you know noise free opportunities um, because the book One Square Inch of Silence is all about creating it flight-free areas over our most pristine national parks. In fact, um, the whole one square inch is leading up to Senator Maria Cantwell's interest in creating a no-flight zone over Olympic National Park, which would really be a, you know, a, a wonderful first. And that's one of the reasons why I think the, it, it scares the FAA. But I'm not going to speak for the FAA, but I have noticed that since I met with the FAA, it's the first time ever that I've gone up the Ho Valley, which was the quietest place in America, and I believe still is, with the longest noise-free intervals. But in the, since December, it's possible to be in the Ho Valley and hear uninterrupted noise, nonstop jet traffic for up to an hour and a half. And my per without studying it, I think the FAA is trying to show that this turf is well used instead of seldom used as it was before to try to hang on to it just so they don't have to deal with these complications. But it's going to come to into the press. It already has. I have an opportunity next week to give a lot of presentations and stuff will come up like the FAA already route reroutes aircraft we already know for thunderstorms and for um, military operations but they already route it for two weeks every year around the US tennis tournaments there's a $325,000 fine if the tennis tournament becomes intruded upon by jet noise, and it's an, a mile and a half from LaGuardia Airport. Well, what's this? <laughs> okay, and if we can, so if we can't, so why can't they work with the National Park Service? But I won't get started there. Please get started there. <laughs> uh, you know, I just feel it. But even the cab driver earlier today, this is Allison King, by the way, and uh, she's new to the sound, and, and so, Anyway, we met for dinner, and the cab driver that um, got me to the restaurant, he goes, yeah, I was up there, and his, his, his blood was pumping, that my blood was pumping. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so the, the challenge of bringing silence through sound to the audience has been interesting. I want to play two samples of what I give in a presentation that seems to have really conveyed the message to people that sometimes have never, never experienced or had the opportunity to experience the subtleties of listening to nature and what it might mean. This one, my backyard, Olympic National Park, is quite enough to be a recording studio. And this is one of my recordings from my bedroom window.
some people hear this recording as a coyote recording. And in fact, it is. It's a pair that I got to know over the, the course of the summer. And they never sang like this before or since. And I believe it, it is really so different. I believe that they were celebrating a prosperous summer, the success of raising their young. And this was the, at the end of the season and before, of course, the hardships that would surely follow in the autumn and the winter. But some people also hear this as a recording of silence made audible by the coyotes because those echoes are so ever-expanding. The next recording that I want to play is one that was inspired by John Muir, who uses the phrase, snow melting into music. And when I read that, and of course, you know, John Muir needs no introduction. And every page in his journals is just filled with descriptions, beautiful sound recordings in words and his available technology. And he's so gifted with words. But when I read Snow Melting Into Music, I had to ask myself, okay, is John Muir being a poet or is he being a scientist? So there was an easy way for me to find out, and that was to go up to Hurricane Ridge in Olympic National Park, and it was in August, and it was late afternoon, and the snow bank, the snow field had peeled away from the earth far enough that I could stick my head inside and have a listen. So I will play this for you and let you decide if John Muir was being poet or a scientist. This is when it really starts to rock out, and, and, and I'm like, don't move, don't dance, don't push. And, and, you know, both recordings are examples of what I call quiet recordings, because they occur in the total absence of any human-caused noise intrusion. And all these sounds, which are insignificant to the National Park Service and not even talked about for the FAA, distant jets, distant traffic, dis it would render all the nuances of both of these recordings 
basically inaudible if you cared to listen at all. And isn't it amazing, since both these recordings and songbirds, all of that music is outside of human intention, but that we hear it as music. And therein lies, you know, I think our deep environmental tie to the earth, where solving these, the whole issue of recycling, the whole issue of, of carbon, all these other things are no longer chores. You know, think of the hardships we do already for those that we love. And so I've tried to build in the one square inch with my co-author, John Grossman, who I've known for 30 years, and we've worked together on and off. And when I was invited, I was invited by an agent to write this book. And, they, and I said, no. <laughs> I, I love the topic's great. I'm super busy. All these sorts of things went on. <laughs> and they said to me, but you know, you could make a difference. And that's what really stuck with me. Two weeks went by. She called back and said, so you, have you thought about it? I said, yeah, can I have a co-author? <laughs> <laughs> Share the load is really a big subject. And so I called John Grossman. John Grossman says, no. <laughs> I said, but you know, you really could make it. <laughs> I waited two weeks. I called him up. And he goes, yeah, well, I suppose we could write a proposal. <laughs> and then in the process of writing that proposal, it, it, we felt like, you know, we might not make a difference, but we would not pass up on the chance to make a difference. And John and I spent three years on this book. And it was right on the heels of basically uh, an 18-month period that I lost my hearing. And um, I basically, I was living the good life. I was traveling and recording and able to hide out in Joyce. And saving silence was someone else's job. It was, mainly the National Park Service. And at times I was sort of, you know, saying they didn't appreciate it much, you know, and this is how you should do it, right? It was easy for me to say. And plus it wasn't really on their agenda. You know, it's in their management policy, but it's not in their budget. The budget right now for both landscape, uh, soundscape management and quiet, uh, quietude management and Olympic National Park is zero. They spent eight million dollars on roads. It's zero. Zero. They don't have a sound level meter. Nothing. They're just gonna let it go. They're gonna let it go. <clears throat> but not only did I lose my hearing, 60 to 90 dB, in a matter of two weeks. At the end of a year of that, because I was in real denial, there was also this noise that wouldn't leave my head, and it was impossible to find silence anywhere. The doctors said as the result of the CAT scan, yeah, we can operate, see what's in there, but there's a good chance that you'll never have perfect hearing again, and there's a chance that this might clear up. Well, clear up after a year? 
I said, yeah. So I was going to go for the perfect hearing because, you know, they said I could be fitted with a hearing aid, if you can imagine that. You know, it's like hearing aids for listening to people. I wanted to listen to nature. So when I got my hearing back, sure enough, it came back. And when I knew it was coming back, I said, you know, it's not someone else's job. And so I established one square inch of silence, one square inch that I promised to defend in the whole valley. And the way it works basically is that if a jet flies overhead, that one point of noise flies overhead, it literally destroys a thousand square, a thousand square miles of oral solitude below it. Well, just as noise impacts quiet, quiet can impact noise. And if you manage a single square inch for 100% noise-free, then that manages a thousand square miles around it. And yes, it won't be 24-7 miles and miles away of natural quiet, but you'll still, the noise-free interval will be long and it will be managed. A thousand square miles is roughly the size of Olympic National Park. And there were results. Alaska Airlines, American Airlines, and Hawaiian Airlines all changed their practices as a result of me writing them and asking them to voluntarily change. Mm -hmm. Except they couldn't change all of them, or they weren't willing to. The <coughs> FAA has Olympic National Park designated as the preferred flight path. And air traffic, the FAA's prediction is air traffic is going to nationally is going to double, if not triple, by 2025. So you think it's noisy now in the wilderness, it's going to be a lot more noisy. In fact, we're going to see in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, the total extinction of anything reliable as far as the natural quiet that you and I have experienced, even while we're complaining. Right? It's going to go a lot worse. And so the, the goal here with the book that includes a CD in the back is people can listen to recordings like this and listen to the 10,000 mile journey that I took like this across the country in my 64 VW bus where we listen to America and we meet great Americans. Folks like Bill Wharf, he does the storytelling in his retirement home in Missoula, Montana. He grew up in a one-room farmhouse homestead plowing 600 acres with a horse. And then when he came back from Iwo Jima um, at the end of World War II, he, he was still only 19. And by month, after three years fighting in the war, he was 19. He still had to ask his father's permission to marry his high school sweetheart. And then he spends his life defending quiet. Right, for Wilderness Watch, he founded Wilderness Watch, and in the Montana preamble, it, it has the quiet beauty of Montana. <laughs> and so, you know, when you finish hearing stories like great Americans like Bill Ward, time and time again, going across country, it's like, I rest my case. If it was like noise versus quiet, who's going to win? And we are the jury. You know, the American public's going to be the jury, and I think it's on trial. So. Do I sound like an attorney? <laughs> so I'm pretty fired up about it, and I, and I hope others do. And then there's one more sound that I'd like to 
play to wrap up on. And this is a, one of my favorite projects was traveling around the world recording dawn as it circled the planet as an endless wave. And I had a request um, by a local bird note, NPR local in the Northwest. <clears throat> they said, oh, we'd love to do something with it, but we only have a little over a minute. Yeah. And you know, we're all used to stuff like this, right? One square inch in one minute. Um, so, no, the 24-hour dawn wave, right? 24 hours down to one minute? I mean, that sounds like a common request. But anyway, here it is. Here it is, starting on the Australian Outback. Started in Australia and you went. Yeah. You didn't all do the full way. circle, or? Yeah, basically there are chunks missing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Big chunks. You would notice. <laughs> oh, you know, and I feel really lucky. You know, I was saying to be here, and could I, this is the first time I've met Jason, and we've been working together since '85, on and off for various things. Probably '89, '88. You were working for Bernie. When is that? '88. 88? Okay. Yeah. But this is, you know, this is really great, incredible. You know, it's like... I missed that nature sound that it worked. So now I... So where do we go from here? Logs. Logs? You want to hear a lot? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hope I got a lot. <laughs> oh, you know, do I have a log? Uh, no, we. I have uh, steam engine, sage grouse. This is stuff for a different lecture. Steam engines, sage grouse, um, I 
And we have the Song of the Merced River. The Song of the Merced River. I went through a John Muir phase of my life when I discovered that John Muir really was a sound recordist. And it was just, his recordings are so accurate. And, and that I was reading all of them and, and cataloging them. And in fact, in the book, we visit the place that John Muir first hears the music. He calls it the, uh, the most eloquent voice of nature. And it's his first encounter with a mountain stream. And that occurs at Montgomery Creek, Tennessee. And we find that same location as we take this journey across country. Well, then John Muir, and this happened right after John, actually the same year that John Muir had an industrial accident and went blind. He was working late. He was a very inventive fellow, and he was managing this carriage factory, and he was tightening up the laces on the belts that drove the automation of the factory. And the file slipped and pierced one eye. And his last image was the, his cupped hands filling with his vitreous fluid. And then the other eye went blind sympathetically. <laughs> and that's when John Muir, in his darkness, makes his contract with God. That if he is ever allowed to see again, that he will devote the rest of his life to the inventions of God and not the inventions of mankind. <laughs> John Muir does see again, and he begins to walk on to the John Muir that we know today, and, and you know, in California history as well as world significance. And, and so in this walk, he hits Tennessee, he goes on to Yosemite, and he, the way he gets to Yosemite after he gets off a clipper ship is he walks on or about the 1st of April. So in my John Muir phase, I repeated that walk to explore, because I, I didn't want to assume what John Muir meant, and even though I knew that I was not going to have the experience of John Muir, I wanted to get out of my normal way of doing things. So I walked up to the uh, to Yosemite and beyond and to Mount Lyle, the site of Mount Lyle where the Merced originates, and then every few feet I recorded down to Yosemite Valley. So we don't have, yeah, we don't have an image. <clears throat> okay, well, it's such a small group, maybe show and tell will work. But this is what the song of the Merced looks like, okay? And you can see it starts out as just a trickle. Let's listen to the trickle. Actually, just a little chirping stream. Okay, the very beginning. Quickly develops. Doesn't take long for a lot of little streamlets. And of course, this sound, you can almost hear the angularity of the rocks up there in the Alpine. And then roaring quite quickly there's there's really no point in going through all of this but I do want to play two waterfalls for you because the waterfalls Nevada Falls and then follows Vernal Falls is a typical example of 
what I've been told my whole life, that, you know, it's white noise. They sound pretty much the same. Well, John Muir, he talks about the individual voices of the falls as heard from five or six miles away. Well, you can't even hear that today in Yosemite, where Yosemite Village, besides the fact that when I was there, I sat outside and listened to Muzak, if you can believe that, because it was being pumped out for your enjoyment. <laughs> but Yosemite Village has had noise levels that are comparable to Manhattan, where noise is the number one quality of life complaint. You know, well, this is a National Park Service management issue because the only services that are allowed in our National Park by the Organics Act of 1916 was basically for normal and essential services. You know, there are banks there. They call the bed and breakfast, the Yosemite bed and breakfast is the town jail. Right? I mean, it's just, it's, anyway. Here's Nevada Falls. Well, maybe I can find. This is a, a granite enclosure. What I wanted to do for the EQ of this, for the different sounds, is that I did that simply by positioning. I used the binaural microphone system exclusively on this. So I wanted the position, the listener's position to, to control the bass rather than EQing it in a studio or anything like this, just the position. So this is all in granite enclosures, but we'll go. We have interludes here like Lake Washburn, you know, where it's just the river's there, but it's, you know, in a lake right now is going on. But here's Nevada Falls. soft, thunderous, and not very far away, but a little bit of a height further downstream, is Vernal Falls. And John Muir talks about how some people see the water as wild and out of control. But I love the way he talks about no, quite contrary. That's when water is freed of all its constraints and its containers, and it becomes itself. Oh my god, you know? So anyway, I went through John your face. <laughs> and I tried to, there's a funny story. Um, I tried to also eat what John Muir ate, <laughs> and he didn't write often about. He was ve he preferred to be a vegetarian. While he was a shepherd, he sometimes would eat the mutton, especially after a grizzly would kill one. And and but anyway, he was a vegetarian. So I made these what I call these Muir biscuits, and to lighten my load during this walk with also this recording equipment, <laughs> I put these biscuits in a in a food dryer, and I got them even drier, <laughs> except they were really hard to eat. You know, you had to let it like soak in your mouth for a while, and then you'd finally break off a hunk. And I was losing all this weight, and I figured, oh, well, I'm losing it because I'm walking all this way and stuff <laughs> like this. Well, one night, um, a bear came in, really smart yogi bear type, and saw how my food bag was hung up, 
and there was a Czechoslovakian fellow that was with me and his girlfriend in San Francisco had packed them just wonderful treats. They were in love. Okay, and so this bear knew it. They were in love. I'm gonna get that. And so he figured out the line and he chewed through the line, dropped the food bag, ate all that food, but left all my biscuits <laughs> chewed up, chewed up actually. He has strong jaws and left as a pile. His final judgment is these are not edible. <laughs> and so that was the last bear biscuit. <laughs> Bears eat like chew waterproofing stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If there's any value, any curiosity, interest, it was all work. <laughs> yeah. Did you go to Alaska also? I have been to Alaska, but not to record. Um, that's how I bought my first set of recording gear because I got into sound recording not to be a recordist, but to be a better listener. And uh, so I went to Alaska to do the commercial fishing route of it. And I was listening. I haven't recorded there. But the further north is, is sort of like in the Amazon, at the equator, at the tropical equator. Everything's really intense and diverse, and, and a lot's happening. And as you go further towards the poles, things simplify, right? And once you, you know, once you get just a little ways into Canada, my interest kind of wanes. I mean, it's interesting, okay? But it doesn't sound musical to me. The space can be poetic, okay? But I lose the music to my taste. That's interesting, and, though, because you played this recording of the water melting from the snow. You could hear something like that in Alaska. You could. And you might find it totally fascinating. I might. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking me into it. <laughs> and John Muir went there. That was why I I know. He did. And with the glaciers. And the dog. The dog. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What was the dog's name? The Hecan? I forget. Yeah. Boy, it's stick of uh, Stikin? Stikin uh, was the dog's the name? Dog? That was a dog yeah. from last story. I don't know if it's that. Ah, right. I have a question, Gordon. When you, when you were recording <laughs> the river, did you ever do any underwater hydrophone recording? I do have a hydrophone, <clears throat> and I've used it for various things. Um, but the, with a hydrophone, you know, I explore, but I have so much to learn with just my own human perspective. And so I see with a hydrophone as kind of a curiosity, and I'm curious. I've, I've listened to, for example, the, the stones roll down the Ho River, and it sounds basically the first time I dropped a hydrophone into the Ho River, which is the river that drains the rainforest in the Olympic Peninsula, and their precipitation is measured in feet. Okay, so I went there. With a, I went there with flood conditions. I dropped the hydrophone in there, not knowing what I would hear, but I knew I'd hear something because even on the surface you could hear something. First thing I did is look at the mountains because how could they still be there, <laughs> right? Because it sounded like a cement chute. 
It was just, <laughs> and then you'd hear boom, 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 the big boulders go by, and you could actually hear the the roots, the size of normal sized trees, that were getting crushed like bones. So much was going on in there. And then, of course, a hydrophone is a, basically a contact mic, and it's fun to play with that putting it on like long wires and because when the rain falls it taps on the wire and it kind of plays a music wow. that's interesting but I try to keep it in the human perspective because my uh, well for a number of reasons um, one is that because I produce a product that is for a person to hear I want them to know that anything they hear from my work is something they can hear with their naked ear if they have the patience to pursue it. And I think that that's an important, an important uh, part of the beauty. It's like the, it's the difference between looking at a picture of the Milky Way, which in a way my recordings are a picture versus seeing it with your naked eye, right? You see it with the naked eye, and it's like, wow, this, this is real, and I'm so insignificant, and yet it's so wonderful to be a part of this, this universe, this galaxy. The one thing that is interesting is, uh, you know, the naked ear can hear only within a certain range, and uh, when I was playing sounds for somebody through Shep's microphones, mm -hmm. his comment was, it's like a microphone, I mean, a, a, a microscope mm -hmm. for the ears. And I said, well, not really. Because you're not actually going in that depth. You know, it's, there's no analogy to that necessarily in, in a really good recording. It's just you're amplifying and being able to hear details in a certain way. It would be interesting to, to imagine something that was more like a microscope for sound, or a telescope. Well, I, I agree with that. You're magnifying. You're sending this tiny signal through an amplifier and you're magnifying it mm -hmm. a microscope does. There's a dynamic range issue also with microphones. They don't microphone any recording system you have is not going to have the dynamic range of human hearing. So the compression itself actually lends itself to certain perceptual artifacts mm -hmm. that are pretty uh, that are really profound because all of a sudden it sounds and even if you compress it a little bit it sounds synthesized. Mm -hmm. Because our ears are used to hearing things in a field of whatever the noise floor is and whatever the extent of our uh, top threshold is. Oh, oh, you were talking about outer space or space and you know imagining sounds. And I just wanted to share something. I did. I mentioned it. I think over at um, Jeremy or Aaron's house. But it was so profound for me that I wanted to share it with you guys because maybe you'll appreciate it. Um, I, for a lot of years, went around recording with a contact microphone, and it started when I was working on Dune, you know, science fiction movie, and we were trying to figure out what outer space would sound like. And so we were, we did. I went into inner space and would get all these, you know, lab, all these sounds and the, the inner workings of things, you know, and and. Um, but six months ago, I guess, I, Doom was like a gajillion years ago, and it was exciting and fun, you know, to sort of imagine we made up our own outer space. A lot of it didn't even come in the movie. It's sitting in my library, but it's pretty amazing. Anyway, um, the, um, I, I went to a Kronos Quartet 
somebody in, in uh, um, uh, the Netherlands contacted me and said, you know, there's this amazing concert that's going on at Stanford. So I go trooping all the way over to Stanford. And he says, you know, they're going to do this thing with, with space. And I'm like, oh, okay, right, I'll try. And, but they had um, sounds of outer space. There was a, a guy from NASA that had taken, and I don't know if it's a magnetic resonance, blah, blah, something or other, that he had invented to record sounds of outer space. And they had these space probes that had gone all the way out to Neptune. I mean, just incredible. And he, for 20 years, he's been recording outer space. And he wanted to do something with these recordings, you know. And so he contacted the Cronus Quartet, just to, you know, the musicality oh. of outer <laughs> space. So to make those the data waves audible? Yes, to make well, they made them audible. He knew how to do that. They made them audible. But and so just and so they he so what the Cronus Quartet they did this incredible thing that's called Sunra and they had Terry Riley and they showed the the pictures the images of outer space. So you had this you know you know this incredible three D kind of thing. And they had these sounds going through space, and then the Cronus Quartet was kind of the human element of the sound thing. But I sat there crying because the sounds that I heard in inner space going into here, mm. that was we were kind of conceiving that just happened totally by accident, getting out of the way and just listening, was what was happening out there. That, that thing of, you know, so below, so above was so <laughs> profound to me. I mean, it was just really remarkable that, you know, somehow it was all connected. I mean, it was like really, and, and the whole thing of, you know, playing music at the same time of kind of, I don't know, anyway, it was, it was really transcendent. Yeah, it is neat. I like that. So <coughs> Yeah. Where did you get your inner space sounds? Uh, I, it was uh, for, with a, I, I um, have a contact microphone. It was the guy who actually invented the uh, hydrophone, invented uh, this thing called a frap, <laughs> and it was used a lot in the '60s. It was a uh, Arnie Lazarus. Uh, Arnie Lazarus, yes, Arnie exactly. Lazarus. And he used it for uh, to put on um, guitar you know, stick on. Well, it's to, yeah, to stick on. I, I saw it. Ori I heard about it originally in in um, England. It, it I got to use the prototype of that in 1980 on a little Finnish folk harp huh. called the Kantala. So we had mm -hmm. a, two Nakamichis and a U87 and a f prototype frap. And it's just huge. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Bass forever from this I, little instrument. It's amazing. I know that little microphone. But I, I found it when I was in England. It was some little BBC thing. They showed a, 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 a guitar and a drum playing and you couldn't hear the drum and you listen to the guitar and you know whoa you can isolate sounds this is my way you know was to isolate sounds wow you can do that and you don't hear anything else around and so I, I went and found out that the guy had invented it here and, and um, uh, he made a special one for me a custom one and so I yeah. for a lot of years recording did you do, do you have a hydrophone as well or I just don't, a contact but I I I, think yeah. I, I made a hydrophone out of a piezo disc and, and plastic it wow. in the hardware store, which is actually really fun. And, you know, it just sounds like a contact microphone. I mean, no matter what you do with it, you put it on this, you put it on that, it always has the same kind of really, it's a very compressed yeah. sound. It has a very limited range. <coughs> what was and the it, transducer? What's that? What was the transducer you used to encapsulate? 
Uh, Plastidip. Okay. No, but I don't know what the, the inside, what was inside? Piezo. 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 So, it's, you know, it's kind of this big. So, I just, you know, and I'm not a very, uh, I'm not a microphone builder. I just thought I'd practice and try this. And it's very interesting. And I also took condoms and put them around large diaphragm microphones and <laughs> very interesting sounds, dipping it into the water and playing around with just how far it goes down and hearing pitch variation and all this stuff. But talk about music. I mean, that's the thing that amazed me is that the range that you what you what you get when you do a contact microphone recording is just the, the real detailed compressed um, trickles and it's very melodic so it's it's almost like you're sort of extrapolating out just this layer of music and, and it's kind of interesting I, I think there's a lot of material there I have two questions actually um, the Nature Sounds Bulletin from, I think, summer 2002 showed up recently, and I've been reading Bernie Krause's interview and stuff. And somebody asked him about the week after of September 2001. I, this is actually for anybody in the room. Did anybody do any nature recording during the week of September 12, 2001, when there were no airplanes? I noticed it was really quiet, which was great. I didn't have any recording, but it was If really I didn't great. live near a freeway, I'd have been out there. I, was I didn't do any recording, but I was in Yosemite while the air traffic was stopped. Mm. And I went oh, in Yosemite oh, a lot. Four days. No plans. Oh, right. Oh, Except for the ones going to Saturday. Okay. But the other question I had what? is those coyotes, it would be so cool to record music in that space. Has anybody ever done that? I mean, I have a harp trio I'd like to bring up there or something. In, into the Outside your bedroom window, window or whatever. Mm -hmm. That right. first thing you played. Wow. Yeah, what was that? What, can you describe the space that made all that reverberance was amazing? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, the... From your backyard or your back From window? the coyotes. Yeah, what was, what, what, is it just a, well, a bare mountain or is there, are there trees? Or no, it's actually at the... I, I, okay. <clears throat> I rent a place that is almost at the knoll of a hill. And it's 90 acres that was once in hay, and then it's bordered by tall trees. Right? And the coyotes were at the crest there at a distance of about. I'm going to guess 50 feet from my window. So there was enough, and this is this is the way it happened. I had my recording equipment set up against the wall, more or less. I woke up in the middle of the night because I sleep with the bedroom window open. I like the feel of the air moving around me, and they were singing, and I and it was just beautiful. And I said. There's no way in hell I'm going to be able to record this. They'll run off. I should just enjoy it, not be obsessed with my work. <laughs> <laughs> and so I listened to about five minutes of it, and I go, I can't see this. <laughs> so very quietly, I still had cables to plug in. <laughs> and it was like, and I knew they were going to stop as soon as I hit record. They would stop because it's all a game. <laughs> but I had to try. And so it's like I had to put the tripod out the window, and I knew that they were going to run off when that happened. And they didn't. And then I finally pushed record, 
and I'm going, oh my God, it looks like it's happening, but I know this is on dad tape. But I know it's not wrapping around the head. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, all these things. <clears throat> and they sang, you know, they continued to sing. And then the first thing I did was rewind play. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. So. But that's the setting. It's um, uh, basically a grassland knoll with distant trees. And then behind the trees, then rises some forested hills. So it's, it's real. Yeah. So how long did they sing for you? There was recording. The recording is only about another 30 seconds more than this in the, in the, in the front in the front end and um, so I guess that would make their whole singing time about seven or eight minutes it was just they were so and you know had they not been so passionate about it I think they would have been more attentive to my sounds but they were lost in the experience and and it's recorded in binaural. So if you listen with headphones, you'll hear that way. So. <clears throat> yeah, one of those lucky times. <laughs> with, all, with all these, uh, like I, th I think the things that you're talking about that are most important and are resonating most deeply with me have nothing to do with preamps or microphones or anything. But I have to ask, like you used the Fritz head? Yeah. And it just stock as it as it came, or yeah. was it specially modified for you? No, or? just a Fritz head stock, which is pretty <clears throat> important. I've I've used a variety of binaural heads, and I have a, probably twenty different microphone systems. Fritz is always my first choice, and even the the KU one hundred, which replaced the KU eighty one I, which is what I use. I don't think produces as well of an image. I think it was <clears throat> it was modified so that it would have better speaker compatibility. Mm -hmm. But I haven't found a big speaker issue with the KU81i for some recordings. For some recordings, yes. For all recordings, no. And so that's part of what I try to discriminate with. But I'm not exactly sure. You know, the the listening part and taste and preference. I'm sure that. My brain has learned to like a system. You know, like if you've ever borrowed somebody else's headphones, it's like, <laughs> you can use these. <laughs> you know, it's just to get used to your sound. So, yeah, it's hard. But I really just unaltered. You, uh, you were talking about, like, a, when we came over and right before we started, you. Uh, we're just mentioning like uh, how attentive you become at the moment when you're making a recording, right. and uh, that resonated really deeply with me because like, uh, I've written a little bit about this, but I often find myself saying it that the that the most meditative practice that I have in my life is the moments when I'm making recording because even not only of course particularly to what I'm hearing I'm attending deeply, but also I find that just the requirement to be absolutely still and to be very conscious of my body in all aspects and breath and motion and movement um, grounds me in that and then also I find simply having to be still in a place it's kind of like the old mad magazines where all the stuff in the marginalia starts to come out and uh, not necessarily even in the things like the, you know the deer coming back into the meadow but more just I start right. to notice more that was otherwise invisible to me and um, 
but that made me when for my particular recording practice it's an absolute necessity because I wear my like binaural rig on my head and uh, so something I wanted to ask you was when you're using Fritz do you try to get far away so that any incidental body noise doesn't intrude in yeah, the recording or um, I have two Fritzes and what I generally do is because there's a fair, you know, there's always a lot of waiting, okay? And, a, and it's amazing how often a good photograph turns into a good sound recording because the elements, the composition, all of that. So I'll generally find one location that I know I'm just going to want to run for hours and hours and hours. And so then I set that up, and of course that cable run is short. It's not an issue. So I'll drop that. And then I'll go off on kind of more exploring. When I find something that I really like, I'll go for a long period of time. And it's usually at least 50 feet that I'm leaving between myself and the binaural head. When I when I find something that I want to run for longer than a minute, and the minute is just, is this gonna, you know, does it have a certain quality? And really, for a sound, for me, the setup, I'm gonna know in less than five seconds if it has what I want. Now, the future though, of what it will develop into and the events that take place are all uncertain. But it's that background will more or less be known. There's a certain tonal quality that I want to be there. And then it'll run out 50 feet. The longest run I've done has been over 100 yards. But I think, you know, Dan knows that you run into other issues. And then so there's more preparation. But when I started recording with Fritz, I had a, a, the Nagra 4S. Of course, that was really heavy, and you could only, well, the way I was using it, you could only record for 15 minutes at a time, even with the larger reels. <coughs> so that, that was a, a big operation. I would run pretty long lengths there. When you did a, when you, when you go into a place and are, are finding those locations that you know you want to capture, especially in this more uh, sort of mobile way, do you audition with your bare ears, or do, are you monitoring through to get what, what Fritz is hearing with the specific differences that Fritz might have to how you might Well, it's, it's a lot like photography. You know, you, you really have to not only see it through the lens, but then see it in the frame, in the print. But you can train yourself to go with it. But that is that is the point. The What I do with all of my work is because I want the human perspective is I use the sound level meter. That's how I got it in the first place so that I could monitor noise levels. But the whole, you know, it's a very simple handheld device and you probably, many of you have already seen it because my eyes have gotten so bad. But the, yeah, so you use something like this so when you're recording a creek right there at the position of the head I can know, okay, this creek is, the, the perspective that I have is at 36 dB, it's, and it's not 60 dB. And when you think about it, it's a lot more easy to make, a, and for every doubling of the energy, okay, you're only going to see a 3 dB change. So it's very easy on 
playing back a recording that you've made just to get it wrong, and that that changes the frequency relationships, the audibility of it, the sound of it. It may still sound good to you, but it's going to sound different. And and then on playback, then you can use this again. And you know that's sort of like a second generation estimate, but you're still going to do better than just pulling it out of the blue. If, if you're after creating a document, but you know, if you're just using it as an aesthetic, then I think it's whatever you like. Um, yeah, so. Do you, do you notate? Uh, on tape, <coughs> on, on tape, usually not at the beginning of a recording, because otherwise it'd just be all those useless notes, <laughs> right? Because there's so few recordings that I really wind up keeping. But at the end of something, this is a keeper. Oh yeah, and you usually I know in the field that well not always. When I get tired, I stop listening, and it's amazing how often when I'm tired, I, I record a minute of something that later in the studio I go, oh, don't stop, and then it stops, and then, you know I go off, and it's the best thing. I had all day, but I just didn't hear it. Right? But when I know I have something good, then at the very end, I cut it, and then I describe the place, the location, the sound pressure level, and uh, various other things that I might have observed while being still. Right? That marginality, that is really a beautiful experience. When you do those uh, very long recordings where you set up set up a rig and leave it, yeah. do, you, do you tend to audition those right away, like later the same day or after the, during the no, same trip? Or? Um, the, well now, of course, because it doesn't have to be loaded in real time, you can jump in and check it, particularly if you're trying to, if you think that you may want to revisit the site. But earlier, it was basically, no, that's just extra that I can visit later and generally when I review a recording, I know because the audience is not, and this is for the audience, right? Because the recording process is to make me a better listener, but the recording itself is for the audience. That the audience won't have all that marginality. And so if I wait two weeks, if I wait two months, all the better, right? Because I'm going to have more of the experience the audience will. Right. Have you ever been shocked at something you didn't know was in one of those recordings that you discovered like later in the studio? Oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, there's the most striking story was when I was in Sri Lanka, and I was already on guard in Sri Lanka. This is for the Don Chorus project, and I was already on guard there because in order to get to the recording location, the Sinharaja Rainforest, we had to go through these military checkpoints. And it was my, going around the world was actually my first time leaving the country. Right? <laughs> and so everything was really new to me, and we got stopped at this military checkpoint, and this guy with this machine gun in his mouth is just dripping all this red, and I'm going, oh my god, why does he have a smile on his face, and it was Beetlejuice. Right, the beetle bean stuff. It's because he's all narcoticed up or whatever. So I, every once in a while, the noise pollution there would be distant gunfire. <laughs> and so my guard was really up. And when I hiked into the Sinharaja 
rainforest at dawn by myself, as innocent as could be, I, I heard the frogs and the insects, and it was just magic, the wall of the vines and everything, beautiful little enclosure, but I was freaking out. My heart was racing, and I was beginning to panic, and it was like, what's with me, right? And, you know, just stay put. And then I realized I don't have to. Yeah, I didn't stop panicking. I don't have to. And I just left my equipment running and went back to the recording. I think it was four months later. I'm playing it in my studio, and sure enough, I hear my footsteps go off. And then it wasn't, it was only like 20 seconds after that that I could hear the leopard come out of the bushes. Right? And you could hear a sort of guttural thing going on. And I remember during my visit there that my guide, Carlu, had talked about how they never found the woman. But she was small. So the leopard probably dragged her up in a tree. And we never find small people. So it might have been the very leopard. I don't know. But I thought, there you go. You know, I was getting in the way of my listening. I was telling myself what listening is about, how listening is supposed to be, rather than following my instincts. So, lesson not learned at the time, but learned later. <laughs> I, I was wondering um, if you have talked with the light pollution people and there are parallels or differences. Well, when I was in there, sort of light pollution is the evil cousin of noise pollution. You know, one of the fastest ways to get to a quiet place is you look at the NASA nighttime view of Earth. Like, you know, and the when I was in Washington D.C., uh, Dennis Galvin, who served as the assistant director of the National Park Service through a couple of administrations, which actually makes him more important than a director that's usually there during an administration and the political, you know, this guy really knows the ropes. And and he's, by the way, one person who said, you know, focus on one area and push for legislation, okay? Because that bypasses all the bickering that the National Park Service and the FAA do within themselves and across agency. And he said that this is about 25 years, the, the noise issue is about 25 years ago how the light issue was. And it was once they found out that turtles would migrate in the wrong direction because of light pollution, then it became more important. And isn't that interesting? Another species, more important. And some, so it, there, there we go with that. Well, there is n new noise data on the effects of noise for wildlife. In fact, it's really compelling. Gail Patricelli here at, at I think she's at Berkeley, uh, studied the sage grouse in Wyoming and the effects of drilling uh, noise on the, the sage grouse perform at these leks. And of course, they, and I have a sage grouse recording, um, but anyway. The, they give this low frequency and then there's a kind of this guttural thing as they inflate and deflate these air, these throat sacs and their wings and um, she found that up to 50% loss in reproduction mm -hmm. wow. because of noise 
And these, these drilling rigs are in the oven bird in Canada. Um, 70 cent pairing success versus 100% on the controls as a result of noise. The bighorn uh, sheep in, uh, in Grand Canyon as a result of helicopter tours, they spent a lot more time moving to feeding areas and a lot less time eating, particularly during the winter when they have a huge energy expenditure. Mm. So, you know, there are a lot of indicators and of course for songbirds, as you can imagine, how important that is for just, you know, in the attraction of a mate and with noise, basically the, the shadow of fossil fuel consumption and in this country we're consuming 25% of the world's fossil fuels. And we also have um, one quarter of American songbirds are in decline, right? So the, <clears throat> I think once we tie in that other species are being affected. The first, the only marine mammal extinction in the last 50 years is likely due because of noise, the Yancey River dolphin. So, it's coming together. Hopefully it won't be 25 years. Would you play the sage, sage grass? I'd love to hear something. Okay, um, I'm gonna need power for the laptop though, because it decided I was ignoring it, and it probably got to the end. Um, And then, you know, on the topic of songbirds, there is a recording that I also have from Dawn on the Mississippi River that I was led to by the description of Mark Twain. Um, Mark Twain, um, modern biographers don't really give Mark Twain credit as being a supersonic listener, but he was. He wouldn't remain in the room with a ticking clock. When he gave his readings around the world, he wouldn't give a reading unless the programs were printed on noiseless paper, which meant a high, which meant a high cloth content. And, and he uses silence in his soundscape development of Huck Finn. Huck makes his transformation into manhood when he decides that, yeah, he will go to hell if, that's, if this is what it means. He searches his soul in the silence of the Mississippi River, and Mark Twain reserves silence for Tom in the cave. Mm. And so, you know, he's very, very... And anyway, a description of Mark Twain's trip in the Mississippi River where Huck is, that's what led me to a particular recording that I made of the... Okay. Um, Sagebrows. Oh yeah, here we go with sagebrush.
to get this listening opportunity, you have to arrive at least an hour before sunrise. And you have to lay absolutely still. And and the hardest part is, is that they don't quit until like 10, <laughs> right? And you have to wait for them to quit, okay? And the ground is very frosty and very cold. And the, the dawn on the Mississippi River, this is one that Mark Twain led me to. a couple of short sections. Now we're going to jump ahead four minutes. jump ahead one minute. I have a purpose to all this, by the way. So you can hear it gaining momentum. The, now we're going to listen to a pretty busy, <coughs> this is eight minutes from our earliest point. We are taking off. These are all the neo-tropical migrants. We're beginning to get organized. This is in um, spring. Early spring, April. But now, my, right now, and I'm just going to speak about the way I hear this. Right now, it seems like they're all sort of into their own thing, right? And it's going to get even more busy than this in the next recording. Like here we are. But what what I'm hoping that you'll do with this 
is not listen for something, just take it all in. Just take it all in. And this is 13 minutes from the beginning of the recording. I just found myself humming this all day. <laughs> what kind of day was that? That was the early, early morning? Early morning. Um, I, I have it on the original recording, but my best estimate is that it was like 5.30. And um, so the rise in activity is what has that birthday Right, and and the reason why it's so dense is, is number one, we, it was prior to the huge declines in songbirds, and also there was an Arctic blast that came down from the north, and so all the neo migrants kept piling up. You know, they just kept piling up against this cold wall, and this was the first sunny day, and they all knew it was time to go. <laughs> so. Have you ever graphed that by any chance? No. Like uh, in the sense of sort of like making timelines for each of the different colors and seeing, because it, it seemed like in the last recording that they had all sort of like found not only niches in the, in the acoustic spectrum, but like niches temporally where yeah, it's almost right. like they were synchronizing against each I know. other. I really hear that too. And I wonder if you graphed it, if it, would, if it would be obvious on the page where you have no, noise and then suddenly you see like the exactly. pattern. I'd just be curious. <laughs> I'll send you a copy. Let me know. <laughs> it's a deal. <laughs> what I've done that I've been surprised by recordings that I captured the dynamic range I heard uh, just from being there. And I think there's something that's been silence for an hour, setting up the green stall waiting for the summer rise. And the first trip you hear is very powerful, and, and then it, it feels like it's overwhelming when it when it peaks an hour later or something. Mm. Later, it just feels yeah. like you yeah. don't get that in, in the recordings. I believe it doesn't seem to pale in comparison to the live experience. It's a lot of the live experience. Good to see everyone. Thank you. Thank you.